Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I want to note that, you know, we took a break and we said, you know, we're not going to be necessarily all on it coming back. We're going to sort of ramp back up to it. But here you just got off a how many hour flight? It's like a 14 hour flight, a 14 hour flight. And we are hustling to record a podcast. We're back, baby. We are back. We are back. But uh, like you said, we might ramp up a little bit more slowly than usual. I'm not exactly sure what's going to come out of my mouth over the course of the next hour, but I am curious to find out. Well, we are doing the hard work necessary to put out this podcast for your enjoyment. So credit to you. I am not doing very much hard work. I am coming down from the glow of a wonderful Bucks victory, but I'm not sure that's actually hard work. There you go. (laughs) Nothing to kill the energy like me making a basketball reference and you're totally not getting it. I don't know what that is, so... How was your holiday? It was excellent. I went back to Australia and spent it with my family and some close friends. And it's always nice going back that time of year. So yeah, it was really good. Uh, Refreshed, energized, and ready to kick off 2019. Very good. Well, you had a better holiday than Tim Cook and Apple, to say the least. I know we talked about Apple a couple podcasts ago, but it's hard to not talk about, what is it, the fourth most valuable company in the world? Yes, that's quite the fall from grace in quite a short period of time, too. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it was only last summer that they were celebrating passing the the trillion mark. Mm. And now they're, what, the $600 million range, something like that. That's a pretty significant fall down, to say the least. Yeah, $600 So we don't get people writing in. I know you meant to say $600 A million billion, who's counting? (laughs) Very good. So just, uh, I'm sure everyone is aware of the news, but Apple came out with a revenue warning that was pretty significant. I believe it was a 7 billion below the lowest part of their range, which was not only their first revenue warning since something like 2002, but that previous revenue warning was like 7 million or something like that. I bought these numbers off the top of my head, so excuse me if they're not quite right, but almost nothing gets at the dramatically different company that Apple is today versus then than comparing the fact that their miss was more than like their projected revenue way back then. That's crazy, isn't it? It really is. And, you know, it was a very sort of interesting announcement. I mean, one, any one of these announcements is obviously, you know, very interesting and is going to cause a lot of upheaval. It's one thing to miss. It's the other thing to just be so wrong on your forecast. I think those are sort of two separate issues. And arguably, the second is more problematic than the first. But also, it was kind of striking just the announcement itself. It was so long and it was like really wordy and threw out like a million different things. It was quite a bit to sort of wrap your head around. So I heard the news. I didn't actually see the length of the announcement. They put a million different things in it, did they? Yeah, a million is obviously a bit of exaggeration, but it was a 1,395 word letter from Tim Cook to investors. And he kind of went through first and he put out the news right up front and then discussed first off, like why their guidance was weak, which was kind of weird. They are, you know, pretty weak guidance last quarter, which was part of the reason, you know, their stock has been down significantly in the last three months for two reasons. First was they issued weak guidance last quarter. So there was already sort of some red flags. And then combined with that, they announced announced that they would no longer be reporting unit sales, which combined with weak guidance is generally sort of a red flag. Like, are you trying to hide something? And it was a little unfair in some respects in that there was a lot of articles written that, oh, Apple is running out of growth in iPhones. They've run out of growth for going on three or four years now. Like the 6S, the 7 cycle, the 10 cycle were basically all about the same number of units. So they've been flatlined as far as units go for a while. And obviously the big shift was with the 10, where the significant price increase led to a a big increase in revenue. But this idea that suddenly 
iPhone unit growth was slowing down. That's been the case for a while. I'm not sure what people were paying attention to, but you kind of wondered when they announced that, well, our unit's going to sort of start declining. And quite clearly, I think now we know that's probably going to be the case. So it was always a little sort of problematic already. And then obviously came in and was problematic and more. So first he sort of restates what's going down. Mm -hmm. And then he sort of talks about, well, what's the problem now? And he talks about emerging markets in China. He talks about the fact that it's centered on the iPhone specifically, and then does a bit of like, oh, there's lots of other good stuff that happened. You sort of remind it that the sky is not falling. But it was a lot of words and a lot of explanation that almost made you scratch your head almost more, it kind of felt like to me. Yeah, I read your analysis of it. And one of the things that struck out to me was this notion that the earnings warning was almost like a Roshkash test, which is everybody saw what they wanted to see inside of it. I mean, I know we had talked about this a few weeks ago, and I think that was probably one of our more bearish episodes on Apple, but everybody came out of the woodwork with their own pet explanations and just attributed it to that. Yeah, I mean, you saw so many people like you talk about the price being high or things along those lines, which I think we'll get to that. Like, clearly, that is a factor. How could it not be a factor? You know, a high price is going to decrease sales. That's kind of like how it works. But it was also high a year ago, right? We have countervailing evidence that they can still sell phones at this price. It was very much sort of the usual suspect sort of thing. I mean, Apple's been through this cycle before. I know this very well because of strategy in that sort of the first real dampening as far as the iPhone goes was with the iPhone 5 cycle, where they had been growing, you know, 70%, 100% year over year. And suddenly they were only growing like 5 to 10% or something along those lines. And the sky was falling. And at that time, I think the stock price, I think it was cut by like almost half or something like that. And that was the whole thing. Samsung's ascendant. They need a low cost iPhone phone, all those sorts of things were dominating the conversation. And I've mentioned before, this was great for me because that was when I started Stratechery. And a lot of my early posts were really defending Apple and defending the Apple model and saying, no, actually their position is differentiated and it is a sustainable differentiation and the sky is not falling. They're going to be fine. Actually, it's Samsung that is much more precarious than the iPhone was. And obviously that turned out to be the case, but it was good timing. If I started Stratechery a year later, it would have been more looking backwards to sort of having any sort of predictive analysis of the market. All the same arguments that people put forward in the wake of this revenue warning, a huge portion of them were repeats of the same ones we had around the iPhone 5. And then we had the arguments again around the iPhone 6S, which was the other real sort of plunge as far as iPhone sales goes, relatively speaking. And so writing about Apple and analyzing Apple is always challenging because there's so much noise around it. And it's amazing the degree to which we can be here 12 years in and people are making the same arguments they were basically making in 2007. So, I mean, I feel like that this is a pretty good point in which to ask, well, actually, in this instance, is it really different? And I, I guess the best place to go to figure out is like, what went wrong? Like, what do you think went wrong in terms of them getting this guidance so wrong? I think the thing that's first and foremost, and this is sort of a good test if you want to look at any of that analysis from last week and you want to see if it's worth even paying attention to, is I would literally read tweet storms or articles about Apple and their problems that would not even mention China. And this is first and foremost a China problem. Now, we can debate, I think we will debate what aspects of China drove this, but this is clearly a China problem. And just to quote Tim Cook from the letter, 
Most of our revenue shortfall to our guidance in over 100% over a year-over-year worldwide revenue decline occurred in greater China across iPhone, Mac, and iPad. So it's pretty black and white. Like over 100% of the revenue decline, they guided towards a higher revenue number. So there is some number there that was not greater China, but the huge part is all in China. And particularly in China, it's all about the iPhone. And this is important to understand. The China market is all about the iPhone. You know, we talk about Apple's revenue and their bottom line and top line being determined by the iPhone. That's far more the case in China than is anywhere else. You know, they sell far fewer sort of Macs and iPads along those lines relative to their overall sales. And in the case of China with iPhone specifically, I'm going to quote, lower than anticipated iPhone revenue, primarily in greater China, accounts for all of our revenue shortfall to our guidance and much more than our entire year-over-year revenue decline. So this is part of why the letter was confusing. He first talked about emerging markets in general in the context of Apple as a whole, but then there's a separate iPhone section where clearly the problem was all the iPhone and the iPhone's problem was all about China. So this is a China problem, first and foremost. Whatever happened to the rest of the world, it's worth discussing because I think some of the things about more expensive phones, the battery replacement program, which is a very interesting point, all those were outside of China, but those would be mostly noise if it wasn't for what happened in China. Yeah, I mean, this shouldn't come as a surprise to longtime listeners of Exponent or longtime readers of Stratechery, right? We've talked about the dynamics of China for Apple and how it's different from the rest of the world and even how Apple's different from most other tech companies in that they're able to go in and because they monetize on hardware more than software, they've been able to successfully venture into the Chinese market where many other tech firms from outside of China have not. But the nature of software and internet in the Chinese market is so different that the iPhone is almost like it's much closer to a commodity good in China than it is anywhere else in the world, simply because of WeChat and the extent to which WeChat is integrated entirely through the Chinese economy. That means that what Chinese consumers are buying are the best looking phone. It's almost like a status symbol as opposed to buying for the underlying operating system or anything else that is so important in the rest of the world. For example, like iMessage, which is critical in the United States. Nobody uses that to communicate in China. It's WeChat, right? I would say a few things to that. WeChat is about more than just chat. And I think that's hard for people outside of China to grasp because even if you download WeChat, it's only a chat app outside of China. WeChat, the app in China versus WeChat, the app outside of China are completely different apps. It's kind of crazy and it's hard to sort of overstate the difference. So first off, it's more about chat. It's your wallet. It's how you pay for everything. It's how you pay your bills. It's how you interact with the government. It's LinkedIn. It's how you connect with people in a business context, like basically all aspects of life run through WeChat. But it's not just WeChat. The entire ecosystem in China is just totally different. Obviously, there's no Google. But what is the implication of that? All the Google services that you think about how much you use Google, not just search, but maps or mail or whatever it might be, all those are different services. And you combine that not just with them being different services, but also the fact that Android in China is not Google Android. It is the open source Android that's been heavily customized by the different manufacturers specifically for the Chinese market. One regret I have about that article, and I'm very proud of having written it 20 months ago and really pointed towards this specific quarter being the problematic quarter. But if I have a regret, it's almost focusing too much on WeChat because it's sort of the totality of services in China. Not only do people not use iMessage in China, they bury it because 
in the US, the great thing about iMessage is the way it was integrated with SMS. And that's how Apple's able to sort of leapfrog and build it on the back of SMS. In China, that means it's a spam magnet. So people don't even look at iMessage because there's so much SMS spam in there that it's too burdensome to wade through. But beyond that, using an Android phone in China, the user experience is arguably far better than it is in the U.S. or anywhere else because the degree of integration with all kinds of Chinese services is so much deeper in a way that is not anywhere in the world. And, you know, this is why it's different than Europe, for example. Europe doesn't really use iMessage that much, relatively speaking. They use other chat services, but they don't have customized Android with the whole plethora of unique services, making it super compelling to the fact that using an iPhone in China arguably dictates a step down in user experience. Like you are kind of having to jump through the hoops of an OS designed for the Western market, very much so, and tied down with all of Apple's restrictions that we've talked about that makes it hard to do a lot of these integrations in a way that when you're dealing with open source Android, you can do pretty much whatever you want for better or worse. And so all Apple really has in China is, yes, of course, the UI, the advantages in, you know, interacting with the device, but also just the fact that it's a prestigious brand. It's a luxury brand. You feel good pulling that iPhone out and putting it on the table. And if you're selling an iPhone that is no different than the one before, why should I bother upgrading? I might be carrying a two-year-old iPhone. Can't have that. I'd rather have the new Huawei Mate, which is clearly the new hot thing. And I want to have the new hot thing. And it turns out it's actually pretty great to use because it's totally integrated with all the services that are part of my life. First and foremost, WeChat, but a whole bunch of other ones as well. Yeah. And I mean, you think about what Apple did quarter over quarter, like introducing the XS Max, which is the new great device, which effectively had close to a 50% increase in price over what was the previous best device. Larger, admittedly, but otherwise the design is much the same. And I feel like that's only going to exacerbate the problems in a market where you don't have that much software differentiation lying underneath. It's like, well, I was due to upgrade. And now to get the best one, I'm going to get 50% more, but I can get this, like you said, the Huawei Mate. And the actual usage of the device is going to be better because of those integrations that you just described. Maybe I'm going to go use that, or maybe I'm just going to put off upgrading and wait until next year when perhaps there's a new design, which is Apple's every second year, they redesign the entire device as opposed to just putting an S on the back and upgrading the internals. The thing to remember, though, is like the high end of Huawei, which is the Huawei Mate 10, it's an expensive phone. It's $825. And the larger version is $945. So like it's a little bit cheaper, but it's not much cheaper. And I don't have the prices in front of me in China, but where the iPhone is a bit more expensive because of taxes and things along those lines. But it's not like they're a cheap phone. And I think another thing with the Chinese market is it's a very bifurcated market. We've talked in the past on the podcast in lots of areas where it's very dangerous to look at average averages because you might be dealing with very different segments. There is no market that's more the case than China. Like there is a very high end market in China that has all kinds of disposable income. And then there's a whole another part of China that would not even dream of giving an iPhone because that's like a month's salary. And the distinction is very, very large. And you see this in the stats, like, you know, Apple has like something like 12% share of the Chinese market, but their share in tier one cities is like in the twenties or something like that, which is where far more that sort of high income wealth is sort of centered. I'm a little hesitant to lean 
too much on the price thing. That noted, what I should acknowledge, and I feel like I didn't acknowledge this enough in the article, is there is all kinds of evidence that China really is experiencing a pretty significant economic slowdown. Even since Cook's announcement like just came out, like auto sales are down in China for like the first time in decades. There's lots of other things along those lines. And not just that, but the slowdown does seem very much at the very end of the year, in November and December, which is important because that's after Apple had their last earnings call when they made their last forecast. So I think I gave a little bit of short shrift to it, but this is the key point. I believe there is an economic slowdown. I believe that economic slowdown impacted Apple. The challenge, though, is Apple is much more vulnerable to things like that in China, more in China than anywhere else for that reason. So it's not to say that Apple got slaughtered because they lack a software sort of moat like they do the rest of the world. It's that because of the lack of a moat, they're far more susceptible to lots of other things going on, like an economic slowdown that made it worse than I think it would have been in another country or another market. Yeah, it's going to be interesting as more news comes out of China, other companies release results to see how much of a bellwether this is of the Chinese market pulling back. And it's been interesting to see the movements on the political side around the trade and whatever. And I don't think we want to get into that, but they seem to be quite open to coming to the table and opening those trade negotiations up again. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll say it. China's being hurt by the trade war worse than the US, and it's not particularly close. Say what you will about Trump and how it's going down. Probably almost the concern is that he's going to give in when he actually has the leverage because the US stock market is down. But by all accounts, it's hitting pretty hard. That's crazy and it's worth noting specifically, but it will be interesting to tease apart and see as other companies report and as more news comes out of China, the extent to which how much of this on the spectrum is a China phenomenon versus an Apple phenomenon. And I think your point about there being some combination of the two is well made. One other thing to think about this, too, about your point about seeing what happens to other companies is there's another scenario to think about, which is what happens when like the U.S. hits a recession. And do you think that Apple sales will be impacted that much in the U.S., for example, if it hits a recession? Because the last recession, the iPhone was a nascent product that was selling to the very sort of tip top of the adoption curve. And so the recession didn't really have an impact at all, whereas now it's sort of a saturated market. So I'm sure it's going to have an impact. But my suspicion is the relative impact on iPhone sales sort of relative to the size of a recession is going to be much greater in China than in like the United States, for example, for these reasons. It's kind of a subtle point, but I think your point about seeing what happens to other companies in China is a good one. I'm also interested to see what happens to Apple in the US whenever a recession does hit. You're right. You can't go back and look at it when it was just starting out because the people who were buying it, it was such a tiny market and people were so excited about it. They were going to get it regardless. I guess what's interesting and what has changed so much since then is the extent to which you think about performance and how much performance is overshot. When consumers can't absorb enough performance, they're always going to want the next new big thing. And like anytime there's an announcement, I'm going to grab onto it. I want that. My battery life's not good enough. This phone's not fast enough. 12 years later, it's starting to feel a little bit like, well, if a recession hits and you're having to cut back on discretionary spending, well, you know, unless I break my phone, this phone's probably good enough to get me through another 12 months. And there's other things that are probably more important to spend on. Connected to that in the Chinese market, it's one of these things that we've talked about Apple being a luxury brand 
that's meant that it's been able to pull through in China, even without as much software differentiation better than other companies might have. There's one point here that I want to make, which is like the luxury brand does rely on at least to some extent performance parity. If the performance starts to slip behind what alternative products are offering, it doesn't matter if you've got a huge luxury brand. The luxury brand does depend at least to some extent on performance parity. Now, this is not to say that the iPhone is not stupendously fast and the internals of the iPhone, when you see it get benchmarked and when you look at the quality Quality of the camera, like the CPU is out in front, the camera is always at parity. But when you think about it from a user experience and what you just described in terms of the services being integrated, and because Apple locking it down actually makes it harder for some of these Chinese services to integrate, it does make it harder for them to maintain this position as a luxury brand because on at least one axis of performance, the local homegrown Android open source products are going to be better able to deliver performance than a Chinese user using an iPhone. It's a fantastic point. It gets to the thing we discussed before the break about the user experience. It's not just the UI, right? It's the totality of the user experience. And you're getting at the same thing from a different angle. It's not just how fast the processor is. It's not just how good the camera is. It's the totality. And the totality includes the things you actually want to do, the jobs you actually want to get done. And it's absolutely the case that for some number of services, it is easier to get the job done using Chinese Android than it is to get it done with an iPhone. And you are making a sacrifice in usability for the iPhone. And that's already a challenge when you're not getting the benefit of the new device. And it's also a challenge when it's really expensive. And, you know, I thought of the Virtu brand. Do you remember Virtu? I do. Those crazy Nokias. Right. And it's like, that's such a great example of the totality of the user experience matters. It doesn't matter if there's, you know, snake skin and on your phone, if it's effectively a feature phone or it's a crappy Symbian OS, right? People will want an iPhone. And that's a real concern for Apple, you know, I think in China. I don't want to oversell it. Again, I think the thing is that not that people are leaving the iPhone because of WeChat or these other services. The entire point, again, it's a subtle point, and this is what I meant all along. If you go back and read my 2017 article, I think I'm pretty clear about this. The point is they're weakened. The moat is shallower. And when the moat is shallower, you're more susceptible to other things coming along, like attractive alternatives that look better from a physical standpoint. You're weaker when it comes to a slowdown. You're weaker in all these cases. And that's a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. You did mention, I think it's worth getting this a little bit more, the the issue of sort of overshooting. And I think it's an important point to dwell on because I think there's something that happens. And we saw this already happen in the case of PCs back in the day, which is it's very easy to get stuck on people buying new stuff versus people sort of abandoning the platform entirely. And for a long time, PC sales were slowing down, but people were still using their PCs for everything, right? This sort of disruption where you started using something it's like a two-factor process. The first factor is the sort of elongation of upgrading where the upgrades just aren't worth it. So you use what you have longer. What comes later is the actual disruption, which is you start substituting something else in place of that usage. So PCs for a long time maintained their usage, even in the face of phones. But then it was five or six years in where PC uses actually started to go down because people were doing stuff on their phones instead. And that's a reason, frankly, I think to be a little more optimistic 
for Apple. I think the reaction's maybe been a little bit overwrought in that it's not clear that they're losing customers. You know, even in China, their installed base went up year over year, a point that Cook was very careful to make. And there's no evidence that people are switching away. And, you know, when you talk about are the critics finally right, I think the answer is no, <laughs> because the critics are all about they're leaving the iPhone for something else. And again, even in China, it's not clear that's totally the case. You know, they're not necessarily maybe buying the Mate 10. Maybe I overstay that a bit, but they're not going out and buying the new iPhone either. And so it's definitely a big issue and a concern. And the overshooting is a problem when it comes to how frequently they upgrade. But the good news for Apple is it's not like overshooting in the case of having a faster processor or a better camera is going to make people leave your platform. Like, man, this phone's way too fast. I better get a different phone. I completely agree. I think it creates nerves, but it's not the same as the sky is falling in. And I think the distinction is a really good one. It creates nerves because generally that is the first step in something else coming along that could potentially do that to the phone. That's not to say that that thing is here or around. The other reason it is, is just because as we're talking about right now, these companies are the largest companies in the world and people are modeling out how they're going to do in the future. There's $600 billion or whatever it is invested, $400 billion or thereabouts has been wiped off the value of it. And it's on the basis of how many of these new things can they sell? Yeah, they have some services revenue, as we have talked about, but primarily it's driven around sales year over year, quarter over quarter. And when you start to hit periods like this, the growth starts to stall. Narratives like this start to emerge. It becomes harder to attract employees. Like it's one thing if you're going to work on the iPhone back in 2010, 2011, when this is the thing that looks like it can conquer the world. It's another thing when you're going to work on the iPhone and it's 2019 and it's okay, you've hit 100% market share and it's not immediately clear what the new innovation is that you're going to bring into the phone that people actually really, really get excited and care about. There are other issues from hitting that saturation point, hitting that point of over-serving customers. You're right. It doesn't mean the sky is falling, but it is a cause for concern. I think that's right, but I think Apple's in better shape than it seems. And the reason is, not to be contrarian, but I guess that's the point. When they're flying high, say what the problems are coming up, and when they're down low, say, well, that's not actually that bad. But I'm going to be that guy. Because in the case of the PC sort of flatlining, the idea that mobile was going to come along was pretty apparent for a long time. I mean, remember, Microsoft started Microsoft Mobile in like 1999 or something like that. Like yeah, It was yeah. clear that this was sort of coming. It's not super clear what is going to come replace the iPhone. And Again, there's no evidence that the iPhone is in danger of being replaced by Android. The danger for these companies is never the direct competition. The danger is the disruption. It's the thing that's coming up on the bottom, right? Windows didn't become a less valuable business because of the Mac. It became a less valuable business because of the phone, right? And in this case, it's not clear what is going to come up under the phone. Whatever it is going to be is a ways out. And to the extent it is something that we can envision, like augmented reality or wearables or whatever it might be, which company is pretty clearly, I would say, in the best position? It's Apple. Now, you could say that Microsoft was in the best position as far as mobile and that they had too much of a PC-centric mindset and they couldn't really understand how to shift their business model, which is the other big thing for mobile. And maybe that's the same thing for Apple in the case of what's coming next. But that's an argument you can certainly make. But I would say, by and large, yes, 
as far as growth goes, there's lots of reasons for concern. But as far as their sort of strategic position and susceptibility to sort of disruption, it's hard to be too negative, I think. Am I so predictable that you know the argument that I'm about to mount before I'm oh, did going I steal to it? mount it? <laughs> yeah, you did. It's, <laughs> it was so funny. I did a podcast in December with my friend Mike Masnick, the guy who does TechDirt. And it was so funny because we were talking about aggregation theory. And I was like, we're getting to the point where I wonder if we could do an exponent, just one of us all by ourselves, because <laughs> we know the other one and what they're going to say so well. Well, go ahead and make the point. I'll pretend that I didn't say it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's all good. You did an excellent job. Your broader point, though, is right. Like the phone was definitely on the horizon. Microsoft saw it and they couldn't bring themselves to do anything about it, at least right now in terms of, yeah, there's all the devices in the home. We've talked about how Amazon was so successful in attacking that market, but that's not necessarily going to replace the phone. In fact, it's probably not going to replace the phone. And the thing that will replace it, who knows what it is, that's the step before the point at which Apple's so successful in the phone that it can't bring itself to compete in that new device category or whatever that is. So your point is very well made. Well, here's what's interesting, though. If anything, there's a point for both optimism and concern. It's this one. Apple's clear sort of growth strategy is leave aside the wearables, which I think Apple's doing very, very well in. I think both AirPods and Watch are definitely certifiable hits. Well, the AirPods aren't really improving because they haven't had a V2 yet, but the V1 was pretty darn fantastic. And the Watch is coming along nicely as well. But going, the other real driver is services. Obviously, they've talked about that. We've griped about it in the context of the App Store. And, you know, I think a fair bit of that services revenue is problematically obtained, to say the least. Uh, We could maybe talk about Netflix pulling out of the store in a little bit. But that's clearly sort of the future. And I think the challenge here is there is another angle, and this has always been sort of the angle to be worried about Apple, is a Google Android phone, I think, will never be compelling as long as the sort of point of differentiation and competition is the phone itself. Apple is just better at the integration hardware and software. It's cliche, but it's a lot of cliches are true. And the tactile interaction with it is better. The devices are nicer. And again, these are mostly subjective opinions that are borne out by the market, I would say, but they're my opinions. The more, though, that services generally become meaningful to your life, the more of an advantage that Google has. And, you know, I've been really struck by Google. They have a huge presence at CS this year talking about the Google Assistant and the degree it's integrated with lots of things. And not just that, though, that Google has a real advantage in integration here because the integration point that matters for an assistant is not the hardware. Like you don't put a mic in a cylinder. What matters is the integration of services with other services. So that could be something like your light bulbs. It could be something like Spotify, which everyone can have a modular sort of connection with that. But it could be things like YouTube. And YouTube is a tremendous differentiator for a Google Assistant or a Google Home in your house. It could be things like your calendar. Like, are you more likely to have your calendar in Google or in your Amazon calendar? Wait, your Amazon calendar doesn't even exist, right? Google has structural advantages in this space. And the more that you are living in a world where that matters, that could actually pay off back with your phone, where I use this Google phone, not because it's better than an iPhone. I actually kind of prefer an iPhone, but actually the totality of my life is now much more immersed in sort of a Google world such that I'll put up with a worse user interface again, in my estimation, for my phone, because the totality of the user experience when it comes to my computing life is actually better over here. 
Yeah, I'm with you. We are retreading territory a little bit, but this is what makes me nervous still about the watch. Like I got all excited about, oh gosh, maybe they've finally cracked it. And I went into play with the new one in an Apple store and it's still this very fiddly, non-Apple-like experience. And this is not to dispute the fact it does certain things very well, much better than they did with the first go-round. But even still, it just feels like they have very much taken the phone paradigm and tried to transplant it down. When you think about what you just said and the services all living in Google and the extent to which artificial intelligence, like intelligence is getting better and better and how that could alleviate some of the problems of having to play around with this very fiddly interface on a very small device. I'm with you. I do think that like if you look along that vector, it does advantage the services angle and the cloud angle much more than it plays to necessarily the strengths that Apple has. Right. And of course, this has been the prediction for a while. I think the difference is that you need some sort of paradigm shift for this stuff to land, for it to matter. And as long as it was just phone versus phone, no matter how good sort of Google services on Android got, they were never going to sort of overcome the iPhone's advantage and its lock-in with its customers that existed. But in this case, the paradigm that is happening is like the home assistant paradigm. And I think what's interesting is to the extent this is interesting, it's It's not the home assistant market in isolation. It's very easy. Over here are PCs. Over here are smartphones. Over here are home assistants. To my mind, the home assistant is much more compelling the degree to which it is not in a vacuum, where it is not sort of a standalone thing. And this is sort of the bearish case for Amazon, where Alexa is making this big push in the home. But this is where the lack of a smartphone platform and the lack of a general sort of like computing services platform is a real limitation for them that they can't manage the totality of your life in the way that Google is uniquely positioned to do so. And it may be the case that to the extent Google succeeds in the home, the payoff might come less in the home itself and might actually end up over in phones. I mean, again, we're sort of theorizing here, not necessarily saying this is going to happen. But if you think about the dynamics by which Apple may be hurt, it's in the same place they're sort of looking for salvation, which is services. That's a really interesting point because you think about they do well when their device becomes the center of almost your universe and everything else revolves around it. In so much as there was a resurgence around the Mac, that was the start of the resurgence around the Mac. It was the basis of the music revolution that happened. It was the basis of the iPhone. Like it is the center. This is the hub and everything else is around it. And what you're talking about is is actually more equality amongst all the devices. When you're in the home environment, the phone becomes much less important. When you're at work, maybe it's much more about the computer. And it's almost like the layer of abstraction that you're describing that Google would offer in terms of the services. As performance continues to overshoot, it might actually be pulling all these disparate things together that becomes the basis of performance on which people are like, oh, I wish my phone knew I was coming home and did all these things in the house and that when I woke up in the morning, it told me all the things I had on my calendar or some angle like that. But when it becomes much more about the sum of the devices as opposed to the individual devices, I see where you're going with that. For example, on Android, on like a Pixel phone, in the clock app where you set your alarm, everyone goes to their clock app, sets the alarm, right? You can now set up a bunch of triggers for your home devices within the alarm clock, which if you think about it, 
that's a great place to put it. Like you can put in alarm, go off at six o'clock, turn on the lights, start my coffee maker. Most people aren't in that world. They don't have all those sort of pieces in place, but you can sort of get a glimpse of where having these pieces together is really compelling. And what's so fascinating is in this world, Google is the integrated player. They're the ones that can sort of do it all. And in this case, Apple needs to partner more. I don't think it's an accident that Apple is starting to slowly start to partner with Amazon. They do this partnership with Samsung as far as iTunes goes. And also Amazon is increasingly partnering with Microsoft. You think about Microsoft has your work calendar. Like that's the big calendar for a lot of people. That's a really compelling piece for sort of the home assistant thing. Just to say, you know, what's my day looking like? When's my first appointment? Whereas Apple would be the integrated player and everyone sort of modularize and compete on that basis against them. I think you're going to see a different dynamic in this assistant space because Google has it all together and everyone else is going to sort of need to modularize and partner against them. Yeah, it's a very good point. Bringing it back to Apple, I think it's worth covering some of the strategic moves that they've made around the partnerships and also bringing services to other devices, which is not something that they traditionally would have done. I think it's really interesting. And from the perspective of players recognizing when they're not winning and going out and partnering. So for example, the Apple TV, Apple's done all these services in order to sell more Apple TVs, but the recognition after around 10 years where they've had this device on sale. It was introduced the same keynote as the iPhone. Oh, there you go. I mean, very different outcomes. Recognizing, actually, guys, acknowledgement of reality, this isn't going to become a category dominating device. And there are strategic imperatives elsewhere. So we should start to think about things a little bit differently. Yeah. Having people using iTunes and locked into iTunes and that being tied to your Apple account, like that is actually more valuable to them now than trying to sell Apple TVs at relative to the competition, a dramatically inflated price. I mean, the price point of an Apple TV when you can get Fire Stick or Roku or whatever at 20% of the cost, it's not going to happen. And it's fascinating. It's super interesting because this is a clear sort of departure. I'm not saying they're going to necessarily kill the Apple TV, but they are pulling out what was propping it up, right? You bought an Apple TV because it was the only way to get iTunes content in your TV. Well, actually, that's no longer the case, at least in one scenario, and I would imagine it's going to spread. And the same thing happened with Alexa and Apple Music. I mean, that announcement was amazing and like, it was shocking. It was surprising. You didn't see it coming. I wrote previously that I believe that Apple saw Apple Music as sort of a way to leverage their dominance in phones into another hardware category. And I think that was right because they could have done this partnership ages ago, right? If the goal was actually to drive Apple Music, this made sense to do a long time ago. I think they had to launch the HomePod. I think the HomePod had to sort of crash and burn and not really get maybe the sales that they were anticipating. And I think they quite clearly changed their strategy. And their strategy now is actually, you know what? We're not going to win in the system market if we constrain ourselves to the HomePod, particularly when these assistants are a huge, their dominant use case is playing music. We are just handing this huge advantage to Spotify, which works with all of the other speakers. And strategy is about trade-offs. And Apple is quite definitely trading off the HomePod in exchange for Apple Music and taking away a big advantage that Spotify had relative to Apple Music. And that's fascinating. It was one of the most interesting sort of developments that happened as far as Apple goes in a long time. We should explicitly state what happened because not everybody might have followed this piece so closely, but it was that Apple decided to make Apple Music, which had been relatively restricted. Obviously, it ran on iTunes on Windows and there was an Android app as well. Is that correct? That's right. My suspicion is 
that was sort of a prerequisite if you're going to make, but remember they had an exclusive strategy. That was their first sort of strategy with Apple Music is we're going to sign exclusives and things on those nature. I don't think you can have an exclusive strategy if you're not on like 80% of phones. So I think there was sort of, they had to do that, but they were definitely not on the Echo. They're not in the Google Assistant. And you could use them as a Bluetooth speaker, basically. But there wasn't like speaking to it and getting Apple Music. Whereas Spotify, you absolutely could do that. If you wanted to speak and get Apple Music, you needed to have a HomePod. And now that's no longer the case. You can have Alexa and you can ask it to play Apple Music. Which is really cool. But the other one was a range of televisions. Samsung was the first one, but Sony, LG, was there anyone else is also now able to play iTunes content and supports the latest version of AirPlay, AirPlay 2. So only Samsung has the iTunes store for now, I think. I suspect that's a technical limitation. As I understand it, Samsung TVs actually are quite a bit more powerful than a lot of the competition. And so I think that's mostly the reason. They all do support AirPlay 2. And the other interesting development, this happened last summer, was for HomeKit devices, Apple used to require a Apple-furnished chip. Uh, M5 chip or something like that in order to be part of HomeKit. And that's part of why the HomeKit ecosystem was so much slower to develop. Lots of devices would support Amazon or support Google and not support Apple. They took that restriction away. And you're seeing at CES, there's way more devices that support HomeKit because that restriction is gone. Guess what? That restriction, I don't know how much money they're making that chip. I would bet they're making something. They're not making money now on those devices. But that's okay because everything's a trade-off. You need that ecosystem to develop to become more full-fledged. And there's actually Actually, a lot of examples of this services strategy, which I sort of mocked when it came out because like, look, the services exist because they sell hardware. Like they're still a hardware company. It's a hardware strategy. Like this is skimming off the top. And then a few years later, I had to back say, well, okay, look, strategically speaking, the services strategy is not a real strategy. They're skimming off the top, but financially it's absolutely a real thing. I shouldn't have given it such short trip, blah, 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 blah. Well, now I have to adjust again in that they are acting strategically like a services company where they are favoring reach instead of favoring their own devices. And that's a pretty significant shift. It's super significant because you think about the nature of developing services versus developing hardware. The nature of hardware is you're okay creating premium hardware that people pay more for, et cetera, et cetera. And that's worked super well with the iPhone. But you think about services and part of the reason Google is so dominant is because they have all these people using it. And so much of it is this fixed cost in developing the software. And then you amortize it over all the users that you have. And the more users you have, the better that services get, the more data that you get on it, the greater the feedback loop, the more money you have to then go back and invest in the services. This is definitely them behaving like a services company. And it does give me a bit more hope that that's how they're starting to think. And it's super interesting because like you said up front, for example, they've always thought about making money through hardware, whether it's the Apple TV and the iTunes content or the HomePod and Apple Music. And these services have been there to support and to encourage you to buy into other hardware categories and then now taking that away which is huge the question that i still have is like well if you're not already in the apple ecosystem are the services going to be so good that you choose to use that service if you just have an echo and an android device are you going to then go and get on apple music and i don't think they've quite gotten there yet but it's a step along that path so this is super interesting because i have from the beginning of Checkery, been very 
critical or suspicious of companies mixing horizontal and vertical strategies. Yes. So I got a lot of questions about that this week. I think, though, where I've always been very critical is of horizontal companies trapping themselves in a vertical strategy. Like I've written that I think Google did this with Android too much to their detriment, where they started differentiating Android too much and they neglected iOS for a long time. And I remember, you know, I was talking to a Google executive many years ago and I pulled up a couple apps on an Android phone, iOS phone. I'm like, these aren't even remotely competitive. I'm like, who is actually getting hurt here because of this? And it was obviously Google, right? Because there's no way you would want to use that particular Google service. All the iPhone users, which are, by the way, the most valuable users for an advertising company. And they quite clearly went through a big strategic shift. We're like, wait, we kind of lost our mind competing with the iPhone when we're actually not making money on Android. It was a huge case of the tail sort of wagging the dog. And so that's sort of the context of my being critical. I think this is different. And the reason I think it's different is I think there are different types of services for one, whereas there's kind of services that are more sort of interactive and tied to the device. And there's services that are just like content, right? And if you think about it, Apple is spreading out iTunes, which has the same content that everyone else has. They're spreading out Apple Music, which is the same content everyone else has. Like there's not any real sort of differentiation to those services anyway. They don't really depend on the hardware. It's almost like they're different business completely. This, by the way, makes me think I was on to something when I said a few years ago that Apple should buy Netflix. Your pushback, a very valid pushback, was that has nothing to do with their core business. I'm like, yeah, but what Netflix needs is cash, and Apple has lots of cash, and they kind of need to build something else other than counting on iPhone growth forever. And now they're kind of doing that, right? Allegedly, there's this video service launching this year. I'm sure it's going to be cross-platform because that's what makes sense for the economics of producing content. But it's not really connected to the underlying device. Again, it's a bad thing because like, well, what are we doing here? But it's also a good thing in that they're probably not hurting their core business, right? If they move iMessage cross-platform, then I'm going to have a real big problem with the strategic positioning, right? But as far as these undifferentiated content services go, I don't know. So I definitely see your point because like you said, it's commoditized. The behavior that you drive, let's say you're an Apple user and you have Apple Music and you have it on your iPhone and maybe you use it on your computer as well, but you decide you've bought an Echo or something like that. All you're doing is encouraging people to go try another service to install it on that device. Yep. And once they've switched to Spotify, yeah, not only are you losing the Apple Music revenue, but you're making it easier to kind of switch your phone too, or whatever it might be. Although I guess Apple Music on Android, so maybe it's not quite right, but you get my gist. Yeah, that was exactly the point. And I started to hesitate because the device on my desk lit up and I was worried that she was going to start speaking to me as I was podcasting. Oh, we apologize to our listeners that we set their devices off. Uh, Yes, but I can see this is commoditized content. Why on earth wouldn't you make it available as widely as possible? Again, get more revenue, amortize it against as many users as you possibly can. And you're exactly right. When it is content that is commoditized and it's going to be the same regardless of using Apple Music or Spotify, sure, if it is software and it's iMessage, I think your point is spot on. Like I would have serious hesitation with Apple just making that available to anyone on any device. So yeah, I think the distinction between commoditized content and software is a well-made point. As for Netflix, I often wondered about if Apple did buy it and kind of do what T-Mobile is doing right now and just give a subscription away to people when they buy an Apple device. But if you buy another device, then you actually have to use it or something like that. Maybe something like that could be interesting. 
Well, that ship has sailed. I mean, when I wrote that article, Netflix was worth like $40 billion or something like that. I mean, and even then, my point was, I don't think that Apple needed to put Netflix exclusively on iOS devices. I just think that Netflix's strategy is extremely sound. Their biggest risk factor is they have to take on a huge amount of debt to fund that strategy, which obviously has a lot of risk attached to it. And Apple could basically erase that risk. <laughs> the pushback was like, well, what's the strategic advantage here? How are you going to make up the surplus you would have to pay? Well, one, they would have already made it up. But two, isn't that kind of what Apple is doing now, right? They're just kind of like spending money with things that aren't necessarily differentiating their hardware. I mean, this is, it's a little concerning, right? If you think about Apple's services initiative, say what you will at the App Store and it's 30% take of content that other people produce and Apple's nothing to do with, at least that's tied to like their core strategic advantage, right? Yeah. Whereas some of these other services initiatives, I mean, they're going to spend a billion dollars on video. Okay, uh, if that video isn't going to be like exclusive to an iOS device, or exclusive to an Apple TV device, they're just going to be, what, be a Netflix competitor? Is that really what they're good at? It's getting a little murky here, a little messy as to what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. But I think I'm with you, at least right now, episode 158 at the start of 2019. I'd rather them go spend that billion dollars and buy a billion dollars worth of Netflix stock than invest it into TV shows on their own. (laughs) Yeah, just go to the stock market. Yeah, that Apple should buy Netflix article. I mean, it was pretty unsatisfying at the time for this reason, right? It's like, what's the queer sort of strategic tie in? But kind of my point was, you know, Apple's going to hit a wall here and this would be a nice little business to tie them over while they figure out sort of the next great hardware model. And it would be a pretty nice thing to have in their back pocket right now, if I might say so myself. I know what the strategic reason is, is so they don't waste money doing video themselves. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, see, there's lots of ways to justify it. (laughs) Very good. Anyhow, we are back. You powered through. I thought you did phenomenally. I think you should take a 14-hour flight before every podcast going forward. That would make this podcast a little bit more interesting. I'll consider it. (laughs) I think that's a no. Anyhow, it is good to be back. I think we'll plan to be pretty steady. I am traveling next week, but I think we're going to try to pull it off. But it's good to be back. Thank you for powering through. And 2019 is off to an interesting start. Indeed it is. It's always good to chat. Great to jump on the uh, phone and talk to you. And thank you, everyone, for joining us again. All right. Have a good day. See you, mate. Cheers.